I was thinking this week in preparation for today's sermon about some moments in my life where I look back and go, that may have been a foolish decision. And one of those moments in my life was due to the relationship I have with one of our deacons and one of my quote-unquote friends, Mark Huffman. Um, In, I think, 2007, he talked me into starting to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu with him, and we did that for a few years. And then in 2010, he had the idea of going out and doing some training at a uh, camp in California with a professional fighter. And uh, I thought this was a good idea. And so we went out there and Mark assured me that it was going to primarily be grappling and wrestling and that's what we did. We wrestled the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and we would go out and do that. And there may be a little bit of times where they focus on stand-up and sparring and, and whatnot, but it's mainly wrestling. We can even skip out on some of that if you want. And I said, okay, all right. So we did it. We flew to L.A., walk into this camp of a guy who is internationally known for fighting and winning champions, very highly decorated, uh, cornering one of the UFC champs at the time. And we get out there, and the first day we start, and they said, all right, we're going to start with stand-up until lunch. And the great thing about this is our pro fighters are going to come in, and we're just going to work them in with you in the stand-up portion. And I kind of looked at Mark, and he said, let's step to the back, and we'll just do our thing and we'll be away from them. And so that's a good idea. And so we stepped to the back. Well, little did we know, he would blow a whistle. And when he blew a whistle, we had to rotate partners. And so within like three whistle blows, I'm standing in the middle of a professional fighting camp in front of this guy that looks like he fell out of a muscle builder magazine. And he's just kind of looking at me. And we tapped gloves. And my words were, I'm a preacher Take it easy on me. <laughs> and uh, I don't think he cared. And so we, we start kind of sparring a little bit. And I'm, I'm thinking survival, you know, survival mode. And, and I'm doing pretty good, you know, pretty good. And I messed up. And I caught him on the jaw. And when I did that, I think something snapped. And in his mind, when that happens, a response is needed. And his response was about six or eight punches to my jaw and then a foot across my face. And I'm standing there, and they blew the whistle. And, I mean, it was before. It was like boom, 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 boom. This happened, and I'm standing. I look over. Mark's just bent over laughing. (laughs) Just thinks it's the greatest thing ever. A response was needed. His time would come, though, just so you know. His time would come. I won't tell you about that story, but it was soon come. But in that moment... When I caught that guy on the chin, there was a response that came, right? A response that I didn't like, but a response that he knew needed to happen to let me know that, hey, you are a preacher, don't forget it, right? We know that in life, there are things that happen, there are things that we encounter that demand a response. Pearl Harbor demanded a response. 9-11 demanded a response. That moment when your team hit the winning basket to go into region or to win the championship demanded a response where everyone in the Coliseum breaks loose in utter pandemonium. There are moments in life that demand a response. And what I want to contend to you this morning is that the resurrection demands 
a response. Some of you in here are unbelievers, and you've had a week, if you were here last week, or maybe you're in another church, to ponder on what was put before you about the resurrection. Some of you have had much longer than that. You're unbelievers, and you've heard it for years and years and years. Some of you have grown up in the church hearing that. And you've had that time to ponder and think about. And what I want to continue is that the resurrection demands a response. I want you just to think for a moment. Just listen. When Paul gives his sermon in Athens, listen to what happens. He, he comes in and he, he begins talking to them. And he says the times, this is toward the end of his sermon. He's dialogued with them. He's, he's begun teaching them. And towards the end, after all this talk and talking, you don't have to flip there. After all this talk about philosophy and and the surrounding statues to an unknown God he comes to verse 30 of chapter 17 in Acts he says the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he is fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed that man being Jesus Christ and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead now listen Verse 32 says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from there, went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Paul gives this, this sermon, and what demands a response is the resurrection. So when they come and they hear of the resurrection from the dead, there's a response that's needed. Some mocked, some walked away, some believed. The resurrection demands a response. The passage that that Ricky read this morning from John 11. Jesus being the resurrection and life demands a response. So you who are Christians this morning, we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul's concluding statement on 1 Corinthians 15 that we looked at last week. And Paul begins by saying, therefore, in that verse... One of the most important words that we can look at and, and examine and understand when we're studying scripture is, scripture is therefore. Why is it there? What is it pointing back to? For Paul, he's going he's to give an appeal, an exhortation to the believers in this verse. But before we look at that with you in here that are believers, I want to just for a moment linger on that word therefore and talk to you in here that are non-Christians. And, and I want to ask you, what is your therefore? Therefore signifies a response. It signifies, okay, since this truth is there, there is an action, there's a response needed. What is that response? So unbeliever, what is your response? What is your reaction? In John 11 that Ricky read earlier, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she, she believed in the resurrection. Jesus said to her, very significant statement, claimed a deity, I am, I am the resurrection life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So, so that's, the, that's the question that stands in front of you this morning, unbelievers. 
is that, that Jesus says, I am the resurrection life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You may experience physical death. We may one day gather to celebrate your life and to bury you. But if you trust in Christ, though you die, yet you shall live. Do you believe this? Martha's response, yes, Lord, I believe. But the question for you, unbeliever, is do you believe this? Do you believe this? You may seek hope in many places. You may seek power from many things. You may seek peace from various relationships. But none of those things will satisfy the hunger and thirst that is deep within your heart. You will go through life and you will seek those things all the days of your life in vain. And they will always return to you empty. They will always leave you longing and wanting for more. Because Christ alone is the resurrection and the life. In him alone do you come and never thirst again and never hunger again. In Christ alone. So will you trust Christ? Will you trust Christ? Do you believe this? Or do you continue, will you really continue to refuse the evidence of eyewitnesses listening instead to skeptics 2,000 years removed? Will you refuse the evidence of those who are eyewitnesses? Do you understand that the New Testament is written in times where those around could contradict and say, no, 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 they're lying, they're lying. You understand that? You understand when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he writes and reminds of the resurrection and reminds of all the people who saw it and said, hey, some of them are still living. As I write this to you and you read this letter, they are still living. Go ask them. Will you deny them in favor of modern-day skeptics? Will you continue to ignore the evidence that brought the likes of the philosopher who was an atheist, C.S. Lewis, to faith in Christ? Who was staunch in his atheism until one day he said that the scriptures are God's revelation of himself to man, of the life, death, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? He wrote that and penned that to a friend who 15 years earlier he had penned a letter that said, I will not be religious, I will not follow Christ, I am not a Christian, I do not believe in God. 15 years later, studying the evidence, he turns. Will you deny the evidence of the professional cold case detective, J. Warner Wallace, who his whole profession and training is looking back at cold cases and proving them and looking back at the evidence of the resurrection and him coming to faith in Christ because he sees the evidence? Will you deny the testimony of atheist Josh McDowell who endeavored to study the resurrection and seeing that he could not prove it wrong, placed his faith in Christ and now is one of the greatest apologists in Christendom? Will you deny the evidence and the testimony of Alistair McGrath Theologian who studied alongside in the same classes as Richard Dawkins, who trusted Christ, who studied all the science that Dawkins studied, and turned from his atheism and turned to Christ. You see, you hear the stories of 
people who walk away from the faith and renounce God. Because they grew up in the church and they had it shoved down their throat and they had this experience and that experience and all these bad things. And sometimes you don't hear the evidence of men and women who had renounced God and denied God and say God does not exist. But God used his word and the power of the truthfulness of the resurrection to open their eyes and to confront them with a question, do you believe this? And scores of men and women said, yes, I do. And so the question for you, unbeliever, is what is your response? What is your response? I would appeal to you and exhort you this morning to respond in faith. Because Romans 10, 9 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and what? We believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. The resurrection and belief in the resurrection is critical to salvation. Will you respond in faith to him? Listen, the choir just sang because he lives. And here's the reality, unbeliever. Is because he lives, you cannot afford to be indecisive about Christ. You cannot afford it. Because he lives, you cannot afford to sit back and go, I don't know. The resurrection of Christ is the henchman of Christianity. The resurrection of Christ separates. It is a profound statement that you must come to grips with and look and go, do I believe this? Am I willing to turn my back on the evidence? Am I willing to turn my back on the reality that Jesus Christ is risen and living today, that we pray and he hears. We seek him and he responds. He is working in our lives. Why? Because he is the living, risen Savior and God. Will you believe? Will you believe? I would appeal, unbeliever, that you believe today. Let's read 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, as you turn there, let's think for a moment about 1 Corinthians 15. Paul begins with an appeal to the gospel and saying, of all that I did, I presented to you what is of first importance, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. That is of utmost importance, and you need to know that. He goes on to give a compelling defense of the resurrection, that our faith hinges on the resurrection. It says that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. He says if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But then he turns the corner in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised. But in fact, Christ has been raised. He continues on to to show how that works out and just our morality and how we live, that it influences our life, that because Christ is risen, everything matters. It's not something that, oh, because Christ is risen, that we just go along and live however we want to. No, everything matters. We live for God's glory, and it influences the way we approach life, the way we live life, the hope we have in life. He comes to the end of the chapter 
looking back on the Psalms and says that through the resurrection of, the Christ, of Christ, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the victor and he has given us the victory, believers. And so in response to all of this in chapter 15, his concluding exhortation is verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul gives us two exhortations, two admonitions here in this passage that we want to look at this morning, believers. First, as he says, let nothing move you. Be steadfast, be immovable, stand firm. It goes back to where he began, verse, verse 1. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you bleed in vain. So Paul begins by saying, I'm going to remind you of the word that I brought to you at the beginning, the gospel in which you stand, in which you hold fast. I want to remind you of that. He concludes by saying, now, because of the resurrection, I want the resurrection to encourage you, to lift your spirits, and to cause you to hold fast and to stand firm in your faith in Christ. So the question that I ask then is this. What might cause us as Christians to be moved? What, what in life might cause us to falter? I want, I want to just toss five things at you today that I think in our lives that I've seen can be very challenging for our lives of Christ that could cause us to falter, could cause us to not hold fast, to not stand firm, okay? Five things that could cause us to not be immovable, that would cause us to be moved and to falter in our faith. Here's the first one. is personal sin. Just personal sin that, that we struggle with. You know yours, I know mine, that we... We suffer those defeats sometimes. It can be discouraging. It can beat us down. It can weigh us down. We can go through times of guilt and condemnation that we bring upon ourselves due to that personal sin. But I'm reminded of when we think about the personal sin that can weigh us down and cause us to kind of falter in our faith and go, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I don't believe. We're reminded of Paul's words in Romans 7 where Paul very, uh, very openly shares his, his battle with sin. He, he talks about the things that he, he longs to do that he doesn't do and the things that he doesn't want to do, he does. And it, it's just this turmoil within that he struggles with and battles with. And it leaves him, he's just very honest. And he comes to the end of that section in Romans seven twenty four, and he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul comes around and he knows the good news of the gospel, the good news of the resurrection that Jesus has won and sin has no grip on us. It's the song we sing in Christ alone. There in the body, or in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he arose again. And as he stands in victory, sin has lost its grip on me. 
What a truth that we can say, listen, as Christ, the risen Christ, as he stands exalted, as he stands lifted on high, as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on us. Sin does not have the final say. The resurrected Jesus Christ has the final say in your life. If personal sin weighs you down, if it's causing you to falter and to stumble and to doubt today, don't let it. Don't let it. Rest in the fact that the risen Savior has saved you and he has won the victory. He's paid the price for your sin. Rest in him today. Here's a second thing that could move us or cause us to falter, not be steadfast, is persecution. Persecution. It, it can intimidate us. It can tempt us with timidity. It can, it can cause us to fear. It can cause us to be quiet when we know we should speak. The threat of persecution could call us to not go somewhere. We know that God's leading us to go, to stay where we're comfortable. But in that, here 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, where Peter writes, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Remember Brothers and sisters, the words of our Lord in John 15, that you will experience persecution. The servant is not greater than his master. Persecution will come upon you. Remember the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 10, 28, where he says, Do not fear the one who can only kill the body. Don't fear man. Do not fear man. Can persecution come? Yes. But we have the good news of the resurrection that we have no fear of death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the resurrection. It's the good news that, again, we sing from that saying song. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We rest in that assurance. Persecution will not bring about timidity or fear for us when we trust in the risen, reigning God of all creation. The third thing that could cause us to falter is difficulty and tragedy that comes upon us. Difficulty and tragedy, they they challenge our deepest beliefs Our deepest convictions, our very hopes can seem to be crushed when tragedy comes upon us. See, we learn very quickly that sitting in a sterile, comfortable room as this or a Sunday school room and talking about theology can be easy. And when difficulty and tragedy comes, it can become very difficult. Very difficult. I I sometimes think of tragedy is is when I come in our our bedroom we have a bath right there and the last thing that either myself or Steph does before we go into bed is to flip off the light switch in the restroom and walk to the bed and we do that without stubbing our toes without running in the bed unless the kids have left Legos on the floor that's happened a couple times but we navigate that how do we navigate that In a time of darkness, how do we get across the room to our side of the bed? We make it there because in the dark we remember what we learned and knew and saw in the light. 
we, we see and we learn. And God teaches us and molds us in light. And when dark days come, when challenges come, when difficulty comes, when tragedy comes, we remember what he has taught us. We remember what he's done. And we cling to that. And sometimes that is very difficult. Oftentimes it is. You've likely been there. Where you're struggling and all you can do is say, I am clinging to you. God, hold me fast. Hold me fast. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. Tragedy and death can seem so final. But in those moments, we remember the words of our Lord. I am the resurrection and the life. We remember that death does not have the final word. Why? Because Christ arose. Death does not have the final word. In the darkest hour, we, we remember passages that we turn to often. Romans eight twenty eight to 39. And in those moments, we can't see it and we struggle and sometimes we can't hardly move. We don't want to get up. We don't want to get out of bed. But in those moments, in those darkest hours, we remember the light. And we set our mind on the truth that God can use all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And that there is nothing in this world or out of this world they can separate us from the love of Christ. And that includes death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so, because he lives, we sing, I can face tomorrow. In the midst of tragedy, I step in and I face tomorrow because, why? Because he lives. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living because he lives. It's resurrection hope for the most dark of days. The fourth thing that can cause us to falter in our faith is false teachings that depart from the gospel. They lead us astray. They seek to tickle or appeal to our ears, to appease our longings, our feelings. They separate us from the gospel. Paul was very aware of this. The New Testament writer is very aware of the, the temptations of false gospels, false teaching. So then Colossians 1.23, he says, Continue in the faith, faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Colossians 2.8, he appeals, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by empty philosophy and vain religion. Galatians 1.6, he's astonished at the Galatians for following after a false gospel that's not even the true gospel. He says, I'm astonished. Come back to the gospel. Come back. 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, avoid the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, quote unquote, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. They did not hold fast. They did not stand firm. They were not immovable. Because they followed after what the world would claim is knowledge. The good news is that the resurrection is the validating stamp of the gospel's truthfulness. When Christ raises from the grave, everything he says is validated. Every prophecy, everything we see in his life. 
That's the good news of the resurrection. The final thing that we see and we can struggle with and cause us to move is the prosperity of the unbeliever. The prosperity of the unbeliever. That some of you might live your life and you go through and you don't see the prosperity that you think you should see. You look at someone, your neighbor, who is completely living contrary to the gospel, completely living outside the will of the Lord, and it seems like everything's going smooth and easy and great, and they're experiencing, experiencing all this prosperity. It's the same thing that Asaph saw in Psalm 73. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, he looked out and he saw the prosperity of the unbeliever. And he said, man, I almost slipped, I almost stumbled when I saw their prosperity. But then he, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. He said, I, I, I looked and I saw all that was going on, but then I thought about what the end would be. I looked down the road and I saw what the end would be so that he might say a few verses later, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, it is tempting to look at the prosperity of the wicked and allow that to cause us to falter in our faith. But the resurrection reminds us that there is more to this life than the pleasures of the world. There's more to this life than what we see. So we set our mind on things above. We store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. And we trust that there may be people who prosper all around us. We may experience prosperity and we may not, but we don't base our faith on that. We base our faith on the risen Savior who is the victor over the grave and who has gone to prepare a place for us that nothing on this earth can compare to. So the resurrection of Christ is the key witness of the gospel. It seals the case. It gives us confident resolve in our faith and it speaks a better word than every challenge we could face. So much so that, that when Satan casts condemnation due to our sin, we remain steadfast in the gospel knowing that Jesus died and rose again to pay for our sins. When we face persecution, we know our Savior has conquered death and there's no fear that he cannot drown. When, when tragedy finds us, we remember the God who took the greatest tragedy in the history of man and turned it into the greatest triumph in the history of man. When we hear false teachings abounding around us, we remember the one that is the resurrection, the life is also the truth and the way. And so we trust that and we know that. When we see the unbeliever prosper, we know that our risen Savior has gone to prepare that place for us. And nothing compares to being in the presence of the Lord. How lovely, oh Lord, is your dwelling place. Oh, that I could just spend a moment in your presence, the psalmist said. We know those truths. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not let anything move you. Do not let anything cause you to falter in your faith, but remain steadfast. Remain firm in the Lord. The last admonition Paul gives us is to do the work of the Lord. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
Your labor is not in vain. So he says that because of the resurrection, I want you to work for the Lord. Gospel truth, here's the deal, gospel truth should always lead to gospel living. Gospel truth always results in gospel living. If we understand the resurrection and we confess and we believe that as Martha did, then that should influence the way we live. And Paul says here, let the work of the Lord in your life abound. What, is, what does this entail? What, what does the, the work of the Lord entail? We, we think of Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven. We, we certainly would think of that. We, we would certainly think of Paul's letters to Timothy when he talks about various things for the Lord to guard what's been entrusted to you, to teach sound doctrine, to do the work of the evangelist, to be spiritually disciplined. Certainly would include all those things. James appealed to us, right, to be a doer of the word, not to just hear and sit in here and then go and live however you want to, but to hear the word, apply it to be an active doer of the word. But perhaps the pinnacle, the the greatest admonition, the greatest command that we think upon is the Great Commission, where Christ has risen and he appears to his followers and he gives them the work. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go and make disciples. The work Christian that is to abound within us is to live for God's glory and to advance the gospel. To live for God's glory and advancing the gospel. How, how are you doing that? How am I doing that? How am I living my life not for the glory of Todd but for the glory of Christ? How, what am I doing to leverage influence and relationships that God has blessed me with, with the gospel? Well, what am I doing to, to influence people for Christ? What am I doing to make disciples? What are you doing? What are, what are you doing? How are you interacting with your neighbors? How are you interacting with your coworkers? How are you interacting with the, the kid who sits beside you in class? The person on your ball team? How are we leveraging our lives for the glory of God? You see, when the resurrection grips us, when we consider the truth of the resurrection, then it motivates and drives and compels us to live our lives for his glory. It's the the life driven by the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, is the life that, that looks and echoes the words of Paul in Philippians 1 when he says, hey, for to me, to live as Christ, to die as gain, I'm sitting here and I'm in chains and I don't know if I'm going to get out, but I want you to know that if I die, I will be with Christ. And he said, you know, it may be better. God may want me to live. And if I go on living, that's okay too, because if I go on living, it's going to be more fruitful for you. It's going to be more beneficial for you, because you know what? If I go on living, I'm not going to get out of here and go vacation on the beach. I'm going to get out here, and I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to equip you, and I'm going to challenge you, and I'm going to build you up in Christ so that you go out and you live for his glory. Whatever I do, for me to live is Christ. I'm going to live for his glory, but to die is gain. And it's going to benefit you one way or the other. You're going to see my faith and know I'm either in the presence of the Lord or I'm by you, building you up in Christ. 
Because Paul knew, Paul knew that the work we do for the Lord is never in vain. It's never in vain. Chapter 15, verse 10. Paul's talking and he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So it was not I, but the grace of God that was working in me. Paul says, listen, God's grace to me isn't in vain. I work hard. And I work hard for the gospel. I work hard for the glory of God. But guess what? It's God working in me. And he's compelling me and driving me and filling me with the Spirit and using me for his glory. Paul knows that it's not in vain. He knows that it's not useless, worthless. Why? Because, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised, so that means it's not in vain. Christ, or Paul knows, my preaching is not in vain. I know that there is meaning and there's value in what we are doing. Paul doesn't say here, you notice, Paul does not say in verse 58 that knowing that your labor in the Lord uh, that, sorry, knowing that in the Lord your labor will not be in vain. What does he say? He says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul, Paul's not just pointing us to say, hey, listen, just keep pressing on because one day you'll know that it's not in vain. Paul, Paul writes and says, listen, you press on right now because future hope drives present living it's not in vain right now god is working now god is the risen savior now god is here and with you until the end right now because he is the risen savior he's the risen one your labor is not in vain the work you do for the lord your efforts to make him known and to make disciples is not in vain it is not in vain tonight Contrary to the bulletin, where we forgot to put in there, it says family night at home. It's not a family night at home. Tonight we're coming here to pray. And we're going to pray that God, God would use us to make disciples. That God would give us boldness. That we wouldn't just be a people who give lip service to evangelism. That God would bring about a revival in us that leads us to proclaim the gospel of boldness. I want to invite you back. I want to invite you back to come just like the people in Acts, to be devoted to prayer, to be devoted not to coming to church, but to be devoted to coming and bowing before the Lord with your brothers and sisters in Christ and seeking the Lord of harvest, asking him to send workers into his harvest field. I want to invite you to come back and pray that we would be disciple makers. Come back and pray that God would just fill us with his spirit. That we would boldly proclaim him. That we would be steadfast and immovable for the glory of God. So this morning, the exhortation believer is to just do that. To stand firm in your faith. Knowing the gospel. Knowing the power of the resurrection. An unbeliever, the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? And, and I would just say that in a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And I would love if you're not a Christian and would like to talk, I'd love for you to come down and, and talk to me and we'll set up some time, we'll just visit and talk to you about more, what, it, what does it mean to trust Christ? 
What does it mean to turn your life to Christ today? Or catch one of us out back. Talk to a friend that you come with. Talk to a Sunday school teacher. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to your parents. The resurrection demands a response. And because he lives, you can't afford to be indecisive any longer. Trust Christ today. Let's pray.